Welcome to this podcast series asking the question, can art save us? I'm starting the first national and international conversation about courage and curiosity. What do these qualities really mean and why does it make a big difference to our mental, societal and democratic health? I talk to award-winning and diverse artists across the arts to explore these qualities in their lives and work, both to inspire and for us all to learn. I'm exploring why we need these qualities to help change the global epidemic of mental illness, loneliness, polarisation of our communities and even global conflict. If the arts cultivate courage and curiosity, I'm asking the question, can art save us? And my guest today is Shirley May, a highly acclaimed poet, writer, CEO and artistic director of Young Identity, Manchester's premier spoken word collective here in the UK. In 2006, Shirley founded The Inner Voice, a voluntary youth arts project, and 16 dedicated years later, this has become Young Identity, a literature and performance arts charity experimenting in combined arts. Now, in 2023, Young Identity has the prestigious status of being a national portfolio organisation with the UK Arts Council. In other words, Young Identity is recognised as a leader, both in their field and in our collective national arts. Shirley is an honorary fellow of the Royal Society of Literature, and her work is described as blazing with emotion, challenging all the senses. She documents pain and pride in the experience of migration, her Jamaican heritage and African history. She understands how to cultivate voice and working with marginalised youth, she develops their risk of excellence. Hello, Shirley, and a very warm welcome to Cannot Save Us. Hiya, Paula. It's nice to be with you today. I'm so pleased. Well, thank you again for making the time. Uh, All sorts of things to talk about. Um, And I thought a starting place, Shirley, might be something I learned from you when we were both at the recent Going Places conference at Cambridge University, which was exploring the work of poetry and spoken word artists. And that is the word came first. And that really stood out to me because my... Uh, biblical education, if you like, was very much about God created heaven and the earth. But of course, there are other translations, and um, one being the King James Version saying, in the beginning was the word. And this is something I've only just learned from you. And I wondered if you'd like to talk around that a bit more. Yeah, I suppose for me, the word is really important and it it features a lot when I am writing anything on my um, Instagram or Twitter, um, you know, that we wake up with the word good morning, we wake up with the word um, um, or go to bed with the word good night and it all begins with the voice um, and then language happens and then um, also um, linguistics, all all the stuff around learning to write and, and calligraphy then happens after the word. You know, the learning process comes much, much later on. You learn the word at the moment. We're teaching my granddaughter how to speak. And, um, and that's what comes first, you know. Um, and so for me, um, in terms of using it through poetry as a narrative, the word 
the word for me means that it, it's embedded in you. The, the poetry is embedded in you. The stories are embedded in you. You're a part of the story. I learned recently that um, when a mother um, becomes pregnant, that her cells start to change um, and that the baby cells also impact the mother's cells. And if the mother is unwell, the baby cells come and protects the parent. Um, and I thought, wow, how how we are intertwined as human beings when we're giving birth, when we're, when we're speaking and when we're talking and all begins with the word. That's where it comes from for me. And it's not necessarily that it's around um, biblical stories. It was just that as I've worked with so many poets over the years, I've seen different people deliver the word in different ways. Yeah, well, I mean, what a fascinating um, revelation. I hadn't uh, come across that at all um, about uh, the cells um, between mother and baby during pregnancy. But it is really interesting, this emphasis on the word. And what stood out to me was um, just by having that emphasis on the word was first, it kind of helped build the gravitas, if you like, in terms of the defence against spoken words being somehow less acknowledged than the written word or page poetry, for example. Um, would you say that's where that emphasis is useful, that the word the word was first? I think most definitely, um, because there is this kind of snobbery around, you know, it's the way it's constructed on the page um, and that somehow speaking a poem or performing a poem has a lesser value. Um, I mean, I think it's less now than when I first started writing, um, where it became a thing that you needed to understand what um, form was all about. And at Young Identity, it's one of the things that we teach. So we teach the sonnet, the sinquain, the haiku, all of the forms that have been created. And we also encourage our young people to create forms. But the word does come first. That first connection between um, mother and child, that first con connection between father and child, um, I think that it all starts with that the pouring out of love, um, the, um, the questioning, the, the answering. And so for me, in terms of poetry and the poetry being underpinned by the voice, the voice um, and the cadence that someone speaks and, and in many ways, great preachers actually do use the voice as a means to be emotive and to draw people in. Um, via the word, via whether, whether or not it's the Quran or the Bible or the Torah um, or other, some other holy book, the poetry within those pages is often about drawing people into a better and greater understanding of something that is spiritual that starts with the voice and starts with the word. Yeah, and this is really interesting because I wondered um, whether... Poetry um, is a spiritual relationship for you because I understand you were 35 when poetry became an active part of your life and you've said you woke up with a poem in your mouth. And I have those lines of that poetry here, unless it's embedded 
um, on your on your own mind. I can quote I can quote those lines if you like. I'll quote them. Quote them. <laughs> okay, um, because I love this idea that you woke up with a poem in your mouth, and I'll quote you. The heart is the organ that encounters pain, the place that always peace should reign. It's the place that makes a father stand up to provide and a mother hearing a distant child's cry. The heart is the organ that encounters pain, the place where always peace should reign. And you said you've never finished it, but of course, you've never stopped writing since. That's right. Um, and for me, when I say it's never finished, I suppose it is it is finished because that's where it ended. You know, that's what I woke up with. I've never felt like it needed to be elongated or anything else added to that. But that's what I woke up with. And that's what um, sparked me into writing other things, um, whether or not they're very serious things about, you know, um, the current situation in 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 Ukraine or whether or not it's a um, something more per, personal it, the word has become a part and parcel of who I am um yeah and um I think that I never knew that I was going to work up at 35 and start writing it was something that I tried to avoid as a child I think I mentioned at the conference that I was extremely dyslexic I didn't really start reading properly until I was 11 and 12 um and you know, it was on the um, having a, a good teacher that recognised that something wasn't quite right. Um, but at the same time, you know, being intelligent and being able to articulate myself was something that I was always able to do. But when it came to reading something, I always stumbled over the words and it wasn't something that I I ran after. after. In fact, I, I became more creative. Thing, you know, I'm a painter and I make um, I make things, you know, I, I'm a clothing designer. That's how I started off at Manchester um, Metropolitan University. So I went down the, the the route of creating with my hands so that I didn't have to do anything that actually I had a lot of reading to do. Um, and so it's really funny that, you know, I've just had a set of bookshelves built in my home for the hundreds of hundreds of books that are in bags everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, and I and the and the bulk of what I've purchased and bought over the years is poetry. You know, I you know, and I, I love poetry. It, my daughter always says, "You know, I live and breathe it." Well, there was a lovely um, phrase where um, you said, "Poetry is like an occupying army in my life." Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, um, and that's not just about the poetry, but about the young people who um, who I work with, who I encourage to write um, and not necessarily stay with poetry because not every single person is a poet. They're, they're you know, um, you know, at the heart of writing is prose and um, all different kinds of writing, academic writing. There's all sorts that you can go down and delve into as writers. Um, my springboard is poetry. I love to share that with young people. I love to see young people open up and discover um, language and words for themselves and to create, to create stories from the language that is actually inside of them. 
Yeah, and and just prior to understanding more of that work, your your role as a as a mentor, educator, work, working with um, the young identity poets, I'm interested in your own formative experience at school, and perhaps that struggle, if you like, with with dyslexia, because I wonder how that feeds into your work with young identity today, because. You will have been experiencing perhaps feeling othered by some of the confusion that maybe dyslexia was creating for you, or even classist or racist undertones that, that may have been within the education system um, at that time. Um, for, for me, in terms of my um, neuro, neurodiverse um, elements of who I am, um, it was never an issue at school because I was a gobbygat. <laughs> I, always had, I always had something to say. And um, I think that when you're um, quite outspoken and uh, I remember a, a teacher from MMU that lived near me um, and I used to love to go to her house. She had a colour television and we didn't have one. And she also had a library in her house um, and she had so many books as a child I would just sort of like pick them up put them back down and she but she did an IQ test with me um as part of a project that she was doing and um and I came out um high scoring high functioning in that high IQ test and yet when I came to pick up something to read I struggled now I think I was able to disguise a lot of it because I would always be that kid that was going to the toilet the minute the teacher went um right, it's your turn to read. Um, I would always have an excuse or um, be disruptive because I didn't want to stumble over the words of um, something that I felt that I knew. I love storytelling. I used to have a teacher that was called Mrs. Doody, um, and she was my junior school teacher. And she read to me Alice in Wonderland, um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And we, she just read these amazing stories. And we used to take trips too. So it was always, I was being fed these stories. And I was fascinated by the stories um, that I was being fed through the music, the, um, the, the very popular, I want to say the name, but I can't, Darling, something cart. Um, I can't say the word. Um, anyway, uh, she was just this amazing teacher that made books um, come alive and I could not wait to listen. And so as a child, I used to listen to stories, um, Jack and Ori, that was on TV. I don't feel like my race was anywhere in my school life. I think when I first moved to the area that I lived in, people noticed who I was because it was a predominantly white area. My mother moved from Mosside to Withington. And um, when I moved there, it was a predominantly white area. And for a few weeks, I was seen as being black, but not by the schools. I never felt, I never felt disenfranchised, I don't think, at school. Um, maybe later on, as I got older, I thought about my school experience in Mosside, but not in Withington, as being, mm, oh, you can go to the domestic area. It used to be called the Wendy Corner. And I felt like I spent an awful lot of time pretending to iron and wash up and clean up in that corner. But when I went to Withington, 
and experienced this teacher, she she tried to pull out the very best in me. She, you know, like I said, it was at school that I was recognised um, by her and by another teacher in my high school and later on, actually, even in my college. So there were always people who recognised that there was something that wasn't, there was this intelligent person able to articulate themselves, but not able to write anything down. Um, and yeah, it became a thing for a little while, but then it didn't. It's it's amazing, isn't it? That the the life chances that we're dealt. So when you say I could have spent a lot of time as a child pretending to iron and clean up, such as was uh, sexist education, <laughs> a gender defined play. Um, that along comes a teacher that actually completely changes that emphasis and introduces you to books and opera. It's such a significant moment, isn't it, in, in the life chances that, that we're dealt? Absolutely. If, if I hadn't had Alice in Wonderland read to me and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and the numerous books that this particular teacher just read to us, and she read them quickly as well, you know, so we were eager for the next one that she was going to read. And she just planted the seed of stories into my life. And I think that when I got to high school, um, the first poem that really kind of resonated with me was we were doing war poems and we did um, Wilfred Owen's um at the Coromet Papatrionic Moor, you know, um, and I never forgot it. Um, and it was, a, you know, it was that poem that was like, that we are fodder, we are cannon fodder for a war that we're nothing to do with, you know. Yeah, and I love that poem and it just spoke to my spirit. Um, and, and there we go back to the word, the word speaking something to you. I think I, um, I read that poem when I was about, 13, you know, when you're moving into, um, um, what's it called, annotating, annotating poetry. Um, And I just loved Wilfred Owen's work. And so I started to seek out things that sounded like his work as well. Um, So, yeah, as a poet, there has been many people who have influenced me. And I think that probably hearing the Wilfred Owen poem and then learning the um, learning it by rote, as you did back then, and then discovering Maya Angelou as an adult was just amazing. I am a woman, phenomenally phenomenal woman. That's me. How wonderful! She spoke to my spirit again, and still I rise. And um, you know, up through the 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 annals of slavery, I rise, I rise, I rise really poignant things, touching on things like class and um, and racism and prejudice, but saying that you don't have to be bound by those things um, and you can rise out of those things and to become something quite, quite unique and quite different. That's how Maya's poetry spoke to me. Yeah, and, and it is very interesting, the... Uh, relationship poetry um, can have uh, and often with people um, in times of trauma uh, where there's almost a call for a deeper spiritual connection to to understand their lives and I read that you've you've spoken about this before um, and you've noted people 
don't necessarily intend for what you called spiritual exuberance to underpin their poetry. But nevertheless, a spiritual experience can be gained through connecting with words. When I first um, started writing, I was um, um, an ad, um, not an Adventist. Why am I saying it was an Adventist? I would say that I was a staunch born again Christian, um, and I remember writing quite a lot of poetry that felt quite religious. But I would see the audience turn off, go, "Oh, somebody's preaching at me here through their poetry." You know, you should, you must be saved. You must be this. You must be that. Um, and I soon learned that if I was going to express myself as a poet, that wasn't necessarily the way that I ought to do it. So I would say that my spirituality within my work comes from the work itself rather than um, me trying to evangelize an audience. I don't really go to church anymore or anything like that. It doesn't mean to say that I'm not a woman of faith. Um, I would still say that the very things that I was taught as a child still underpin who I am. But I'm, I wouldn't say that I was a, a banger on a drum now going, you must, you must, you must. Um, so, you know, I'm trying to think of a poem now that I comes from my mom. Um, she used to say that, um, that massa hold the handle and you hold the blade. Um, and I went, what does that mean? I don't understand. I'm a first generation, didn't grow up in the Caribbean, but had Caribbean parents that were bringing some of what they had seen as um, injustices um, here in the UK and even back home, you know, because they were economic migrants that made them come to the UK. And she would say, always, Massa holds the handle and you hold the blade. And I wrote a poem that goes, the boy had dreams of orange suns and darker days. He laughs at the light that's in your eye, because as sure as death he knows it will fade away in the morning of the midnight dream and the dawning of a new day. His laughter is like a whip on the back, because he knows that Massa holds the handle and he holds the blade, and his blood will fall like crimson rain. My mother said, life is too short to sit around, hoping it will change. For you will be like a memory that fades, crushed underfoot like the autumn leaves, discarded by the season's change. So, sister, you need to get up and seize the dawning of every new day. The boy had dreams of orange suns and lived in darker days. Um, yeah. That's, no, that's beautiful. Um, uh, you know, text coming from terrible legacies, but... but beautiful reflection and and I'm also thinking beautiful because um your work um has really shown itself to be a lovely and important testimony to memories and to advice and especially from your mother and of course um your book she wrote her own eulogy um it seems um, to be an absolute gift, really, to everything your mother passed down to you or wisdoms she shared. And, and I wondered if you'd like to talk a bit more about that. It feels very much like a testament to your mum. Both, I would say that the book um, is in three parts. I would say that the book is a testimony to her. It was written 
and um, because she was a hundred in 2018 she would have been 100 years of age um and it 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 highlights her life in in Mossad so from from the Caribbean to Mossad and has a lot of different people in that section of the book. And then in the final section, it's my te- my learning. I always say to my children, what is your learning? You know, when something has happened to them or, you know, um, how are you going to do something different because you've learned something from that situation? And so the book comes, the book is, a, I would say it's, it, it, it's a three-part book. Um, again, uh, I suppose you could call it a three-part being. You know, you know, it's about life. It's about flesh, um, and it's about death. You know, it's called she wrote her own eulogy, but within the pages of it is also about what my mother taught me on how to survive, so that I get old. <laughs> Um, like she did, you know, and um, I always laugh with my children and say, my mother got to 60 and all she talked about was death. And then she didn't die until she was 85. Um, and so it's it's this constant um, reminder that actually her teaching was a tool to survive in what sometimes can be hostile terrain. You know, this morning I've just found out that somebody um, that is a a part of the founding movement of um, Black Lives Matter, um, a cousin has been killed but while being arrested. And so the teachings within my mother's book is about surviving that and also not holding on to um, those types of trauma that don't allow you to move forward, you know, um, but to leave them, where, once they're written out of me, to leave them where they are. You know, sometimes I don't read some of the poetry. Um, there's a one poem in the book that I don't read at all when I perform because it's so traumatic. Um, and, it, it, you know, it's about um, rape and it's uh, um, and the results of that. And But it's a poem that I don't read but felt that I needed to write um, because so often we don't talk about these things we hide them away and um and no one knows that they've been a part of your history you know they've been a part of your trauma but how do you overcome how do you um stand in something that is really terrible you know um and so and then there are all the poems in the book that i love there's one that's um um, dedicated to um, my godmother, who was Omaphrodite, and it's all about her, her it was about her death, um, her un- untimely death, and the way that actually um, the hospitals did not take care of me, who was taking care of her when delivering bad news that she had cancer. And But the story is about life and love and honour, you know, yeah, sorry, I've gone on a bit. <laughs> no, not at all. No, there, there is nothing that will be in excess um, in terms of what you're sharing. I mean, these are really significant 
histories and legacies. And and actually, um, for the listeners' benefit, I'll just share a review of, of your book, um, She Wrote Her Own Eulogy. And this is a review by uh, Sue Roberts, a BBC producer, who describes your work as blazing with emotion, challenging all the senses. This life-affirming collection demands to be read. Charting a journey from Jamaica, these beautifully crafted poems offer a fresh, detailed insight into the experience of migration. I imagine, Shelley, that means you have lots to say and lots of very important detail to share that reflects on humanity and life experience. Um, I, I feel that it's really important um, that things happen to us in life um, and th- some of them are beautiful things and some of them are tragic things and um, sometimes we ourselves um, can be encompassed in things that are tragic and ugly and horrid but how do we um, how do we heal how do we grow how do we take um, even sometimes mistakes that we might have made as a young person and make it that different, you know, uh, for somebody else who's coming up behind who might experience that. So writing that poem um, about my grandmother's um, experience was really important for the women in my family. Um, And there are a lot of strong women in our family that have experienced terrible trauma. And if there isn't um, any of the pages in the books that also say there is light there is um, um, there is change. You know, one of one of the poems that makes me laugh is you know, it talks about how sometimes we're attracted to um, bad men. You know, um, and it's quite funny. You know, it's only a short poem. I can't even remember it off the top of my head. But it said that some of us love to take um, um, love to a bad man's bed, something like that. And so the po- the poetry book is about um, navigating a life that is difficult and the poetry that I write is also about navigating life that's difficult um, and yeah recently I was asked to write a poem that I absolutely love the challenge and it was for an organization that's called the, um, the World Reimagined and they've been looking at um, transatlantic, transatlantic slave trade um, and they asked and challenged writers to think about um, how they would tell the stories of the people who have travelled to the UK, the people who um, um, experienced slavery, but also um, pre-slavery. And so that's the poem that I grabbed onto rather than, um, the, or the story that I grabbed onto. So I wrote from the point of view of um, um Mansa Musa, and I wrote a poem, and I'll read a small portion of it, and it's called Where Kings Live, Um, and it goes. Emperor, pilgrim seeker, benevolent gift giver guide, history maker, romantic stargazer under serious celestial skies, architect of wisdom, a propagator, Egypt's economy breaker, Monarch of Mali, caravan leader, hajj keeper, great man of power and prestige, journeyed through the Sahara Desert, destination, 
Mecca's Kaaba, gold depositor, royalty, famed ruler, Nubian king, cartographer, amongst this cartage, tens of thousands, infrastructure developer, university creator from Senegal to Timbuktu, economy maker, sovereign, antiquity builder, salt and gold miner, legacy creator, father of the people, quester of divinity, richest man in history, Mansa Musa. And then it goes on to talk about um, the imperial experience of colonialism and then ends on him being this wonderful king and wow. the king created. Yeah, wow. That, uh, thank you very much for, for reading. Uh, it's fan- fantastic to, to hear more of your work because that really is an example, isn't it, of dignity and status and stories that perhaps we don't hear enough of, particularly as you refer to, um, when we have an education system that's in the context of colonial history. That's right. And that's why it was in, this book is one of the most important books that I think has come out in, um, in 2022. Um, and it's just a poetic journey of actually these experiences. Um, it was a part of, um, uh, you know, uh, I don't know if you heard about it, but there were all these globes that were commissioned by um, artists to create stories and tell stories. And then um, we were asked as poets to respond to the globes or to respond to the same themes through poetry. And I think it's really important that a story that is a hidden history is also now being told so that actually, you know, we, with the, the, our commonality as humans are is more than just skin deep, you know, um, and we have a joint history, some of it not nice and some of it extremely beautiful, you know, and it's about bringing out the beauty as well as the ugliness. Yeah, absolutely. And I saw photographs actually of the of the globes you described and it was it was really impressive and it was also really welcome to have such a different perspective on histories, uh, clearly not just a colonial perspective. Exactly. And, I, and that's why I chose that particular king, Mansa Musa, because he was the richest man in, in, in the world. I think he was born 12, 20, 12, 12, I can't remember the date. I've got it written down somewhere in my research notes. But I know it was 12, in the 12th, um, it will have been, the 13th century, but 1200. Is that right? Is that the way it is? Or is it 13th century? Anyway, 12 something. <laughs> 12 something. A long time um, ago. A long time ago. <laughs> um, and, and they made a comparison recently to um, Elon Musk and his wealth. And they said that his wealth outstripped Elon Musk. I don't, it's trivia. Um, but I just thought, here we are. This is a black man who's what the wealthiest man in the world. And lots of black children don't even know that. You know, what's pushed down their throats is um, poverty, um, deprivation, um, challenging, challenging, told that they've got challenging behaviour, all of those kinds of things. And part of what young identity is about is to say, actually, your voice is your weapon. And your voice is also where you can speak out your truths and to say 
uh, not allow your word to be muted. So one of the things that we say to Young Identity is that we don't really, um, what's the word? We, d we don't really censor. Um, so there may be politics that you particularly stand in that I absolutely disagree with, um, but I'm not going to mute you, but I will challenge you as you write that stuff to write it to the best of its ability, but you will be challenged by others because of what you've written. Um, and, but it's okay to have a voice and to say what you're saying. Um, yeah, so I can be controversial in that way, that I try not to influence people by saying, you must not write that, you cannot write that. I remember a, a, a poet that um, was a part of Inner Voice, um, a poet called Thatcher Newall, and he um, came from an, um, an atheist background, and he picked a photograph to draw his inspiration to write from, and it looked like the Madonna and Child, and he wrote this poem, and it was, for me as a Christian at the time, quite blasphemous. Um, and he read it, and he was like looking at me to see what I would say, and I went, this is well-crafted. This is a good poem. This is excellent. I don't agree with any of the sentiment of it, but however, I can see what you were trying to do. Um, and if you were to take that into script writing or you were describing a character or it was a, um, a villain in a piece, that would be a great piece of writing. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's so interesting, um, everything you're saying and, and the approach that you take at Young Identity because it also... Um, it's very courageous. I don't know if you agree with that statement, but for example, it's a challenge to yourself. For example, you're not in the business of censorship with things that you disagree with, but you have the courage to still encourage those young poets to exercise their right to have a voice. Um, Absolutely. And, and also, as you went on to say, um, to recognise that, in fact, a major risk that young people face and that stands outside of perhaps stereotypical associations of what risk is, is excellence. That's right. That's absolutely right. You know, I say in one of my um, statements, I, we used to have it up on our website, um, give me some money for those young people who are at risk of being excellent, rather than actually giving me money because you want me to stop gun crime or you want me to stop teenage pregnancy. Um, um, all of those things, I hope that my project and the work that we, the charity, I should say, um, does, is about supporting people to make better choices um, but allowing them to find and discover those choices for themselves. Um, whether it be that, you know, you end up with somebody who, you know, I don't know, um, becomes an offender or, uh, or not, they, they were given routes to make the right choices for themselves. So and in the end, even as young people, we have to be accountable to ourselves for the, the things that we say, the, the way that we behave. And, and who we are as individuals in a society where there are rules and there are regulations that you need to follow. Um, but we start with the premises of where those young people are at. 
um, and hope that actually another saying that my mother had is iron sharpens iron. And I used to think, what's she talking about? Because um, my mum used to sharpen, she was a chef. And she used to, uh, as well as being a nanny, she ended up um, owning one of the first Caribbean um, food places in, in Mosside in her house where she rented rooms. And she used to have a, is it a stone that sharpens the knife? Um, a flint stone that sharpened the knife. And I was like, but, but you've just said iron sharpens iron, that stone. And then she showed me within the stone that there was metal and that it was the metal within the stone that was actually sharpening the, the knife, and that iron sharpens iron. And so therefore, when those young people are together as writers and as poets, they are influencing one another, um, changing perspectives. We've had people who never voted that after being in a writing session um, registered to vote. Um, you know, so it's about how we work with what we have got at the point of when those young people come to us, but who they are when they leave is completely different people and different writers with all individual voices. Yeah, I love this because it's such significant work and uh, you've made such a fantastic dedication with your own life, you know, to to establish young identity so successfully, you know, as I said in the introduction, you know, 16 years of dedication to get it to this point. And what you're really highlighting, I think, um, is something that's really revolutionary uh, in the most positive sense. Um, you know, you, you, you previously mentioned the idea of a weapon, and I'm interested in poetry as a, as a cultural weapon in terms of its, again, it's the right to have a voice and surely the power of change comes with the word it comes back to the word is first the word is first because it's about self-expression it's about how we think and how we broaden our thinking that we don't just fall into stereotypes and ritualistic thinking because as you say, raising money for example for, for campaigns it could be a campaign against knife crime that's one thing, but surely change is deeper than that. And the word is first. And the word is first. And that's, you know, and that's where, you know, Nicole, who was going to be interviewed today as well, comes in because she's been a principal person behind um, us becoming National Portfolio. She drove that um, because, you know, I was like, I don't know if I want to be a National Portfolio. And she was like, but it's where we ought to be with the work that we've done so far. And so, and she came up through the same program. She was in Inner Voice um, and a founding member of the organization. Um, the charity is run predominantly by family members. Um, my board of trustees is no member of my family. Um, you know, so the scrutiny comes through the board of trustees. But actually, we started off as a family. Um, because we believed and they believed in in me as a writer that you know that my voice was important and the work that we were doing was important as well so it's been wonderful watching the changes happen not only in the lives of the poets who work with us and work for us and work with us but also um the impact that we've actually had on the city that is manchester yeah absolutely and it's it's 
it's lovely this relationship between you and your your daughter Nicole sh- sharing this space and, and sharing poetry because you know we've been talking about the wisdoms of your mother and then of course there's the wisdom that you passed down as a mother and of course Nicole herself is a young mum now you know there's this lovely yeah there's this lovely lineage of of, of wisdoms and actually in your prior reading um you mentioned uh cartography and there's a poem that you've dedicated to Nicole and Alexander May and entitled you must become a cartographer a cartographer would you like to talk about that um yeah um actually you wouldn't believe it it was commissioned by Nationwide (laughs) (laughs) And it didn't make an advertisement. <laughs> um, and they wanted me to talk about um, um, passing on um, passing on your inheritance to your children, but not blatantly saying, oh, oh go buy a house. Um, and so for me, it became about actually what would I what would I want to pass on to my two children, my son? Um, um, who's my oldest child and my youngest child and it was about actually all of these things are important you know you know having a home having having but your home is your family Um, and also don't be afraid of experiencing the world in a way that is not in the micro but in the in the much wider sense of actually go and be a discoverer within your own life and make a map so that there is a so that there is a lineage and an inheritance for your children to come that you were actually map makers as well as you know you lived you lived in a little corner of old trafford in manchester um but actually you belong to a global world so even with young identity we write from a local, um, a personal, local, global perspective. So that poem encompasses all of that. They should have used it. <laughs> of course they should have. Talk about Mr. Trick. My word, my word. Transformative. Um, would you say that becoming a map maker, you know, whether you're talking about the wisdom you pass on to your own children, but also through the mentoring you do at Young Identity, is the same as instilling the courage to be your own map maker? Absolutely. Um, one of the things that we try to encourage um, at Young Identity is to become writers who are not just writing, um, and I'll say it, you know, copying the work of um, dead white men, you know, but how do you write your own poetry in in a way that you are formulating it yourself, you know, creating your own form. And that's one of the things that I have really pushed with Young Identity is that we must know form to break form. Um, And I always remember going to, um, uh, we went to a place called Fengarola, in Spain, and we went off um, on a train journey to Picasso's house. Um, I can't remember where it was. Was it in? Don't think it was. I can't remember which city it was in, but it wasn't. It was about an hour's drive, an hour's train ride away. And we went to Picasso's house, and you walk in, and you see that Picasso is a draftsman. He can make you look exactly like yourself. He is. Um, 
you know, there's pictures of him drawing sailing boats and his aunts and his uncle and the garden that, you know, he he drew from. And then as you travel through the house, you see him, you see him starting to break the rules and the conventions of the way that, you know, a lot of artists will can paint and draw exactly what they see. But how do you create something new? And you watch him knowing the craft to break the craft into something that is quite genius and different. And that's what I try to also teach within Young Identity, to know your craft, to know your form, to know a sinquain, a sixtina, uh, as I've mentioned before, a haiku, uh, a loon, uh, a sinquain, a quantrain, all of those things um, are really important to know. But how do you make a Shirley? <laughs> Or how do you make uh, an Isaiah or a, um, you met Ari, um, who was one of the poets that I think is in this series, um, Ariola, um, Princess Ariola, P.A. Bites. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So for the listeners, I'll just quickly interject for the listeners point of view. I did have the pleasure to talk to Princess Arinola, um, who is a young identity poet who works closely with Shirley. And uh, uh, listeners can also find that interview in season three. Uh, but do carry on, Shirley. Yeah. And so it's about actually not just um, receiving a thing, but how do you make anything different? So, you know, you've got all the different genres of music. So you've got dubstep, you've got rock and roll, you've got R&B, you've got um, the new romantics. That's that's an era that I like, the new romantics. Um, I like spandai ballet. Um, and so it was, it was when I was doing this, when I started this, I was like, you know what, we're going to break convention as well. You know, it's not about just coming in and um, just recreating because how does poetry change? How does it encompass new generations? And also making it accessible to the everyday person. It's all right knowing all those wonderful forms, but sometimes when you read a poem that's written in form, you come away and you go, eh? uh, I'm, I'm not sure what that was about, but it sounds great. And for me as a poet, I connect with anything, you know, with form and also freestyle and free free writing but equally so I connect with um the work the hip-hop um uh random reference you know uh list poems that kind of stuff it's about going forward and creating new things and trying new things on the page as well as the stage and in performance um I feel like I write very traditionally you know um I'm a narrative poet I write stories. I probably have a novel inside of me and a screen, uh, a screen thing, you know, a film or whatever. Um, but I don't have any time because I'm spending all my time nurturing all of these young people. I think when I retire, I'll write my great masterpiece then, hopefully. Um, but I write in a narrative way, but it's not conventional either. You know, it's, it doesn't follow a particular form. It is free write and it is very much spoken word, but it's on the page. And that's OK. And that's great because people can read my spoken word and know how I was feeling when I wrote it. And, that, and then that's what I'm saying to young people. Go forth and create your own form. Um, there's a, a thing that's called a loon. And the pattern of the loon is, if I get this right, it is 
uh, I want to say it's three words, five words, three words, and on the turning point, there has to be a turning point on the the third third word in the the what makes up the third words. Um, it's not it's not a haiku, so it's not a, it is words. Um, and I was like, oh, I'm going to write myself some loons, and I'm going to write loads of them. And I didn't follow the form. I'd missed. Uh, I'd done. I've done it two words, four words, two words, and I went, "Oh, I've done some loons," and they were like, "No, you haven't. <laughs> That's not a loon. You've made a mistake. It's three five three. And I went, "Well, it's called a shield now." <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. It's a, it's asserting your right to have a voice, isn't it? And a, yeah, yeah. And actually. Um, from what you were just saying in terms of how you encourage, you know, the poets you work with at, at Young Identity and and really inspire that engagement, would you say trust is a critical part of being brave enough to go forward, as you say, to push the boundaries, to discover your voice? Is it also about trusting yourself to do that and knowing you are entitled to do that? I, I think it, it is about trust, but trust is something that um, often we're told that we have to earn. And um, sometimes, you know, I mean, last week we were talking to some young people and they were saying, oh, we feel that um, the, the newest thing that seems to have come out, um, what's the word, when you don't feel like you're... Oh, I can't remember it. It's just gone out of my head. Sorry, I have had COVID four times. Um, oh, you're joking me. Four times? Yeah, I've had it four times. I have an autoimmune illness. And every time oh. I've tested, I've had it when I've been really poorly. And so I've had it four times. But I'm here still. But sometimes my brain gets a little bit mashed. Um, what I would say is that they, um, what's it called? Syndrome, imposter syndrome. So some of them were saying that they had the imposter syndrome. And I said, um, you know, no one can say that they've not felt like that in their in their life. Can I do this job? Am I capable of passing this? Yeah, going answering going back to the question um, that I probably need you to rephrase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, uh, y yeah, you you are acknowledging um, the question. It's in terms of how trust is part of someone's courage, in a way, in terms of trusting yourself. Uh, as you say, to to not feel like an imposter, but to have the right to be. That's right, and and that's what I was trying to say to them. That actually, we've all felt like that. I felt like that, but that's okay to feel like that. But it's also important to put those feelings to one side and trust you and trust your voice. And um, as I mentioned, all of the genres before in music, that actually you might like rock and roll or classic. My son loves classic music, absolutely adores it. Um, my, 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 I can remember Nicole loving um, a band that was called, I think they were called Some 42 or something like that. And she went out and bought all the clothes and her brother was like, no, sister of mine, no. Um, but I went, no, she has a right to have um, those views and those points. And if you say no, you break that, you know, um, allow her to be her in the same way you love classical music, which is actually one that um, um, people would say as a black man is not, um, you know, not usual, you know. So actually, 
it to to get to the place of trust i think um is is much more difficult but it's something that i've done with young identity i trust the young people's voice i trust that we, you know, we train them up to actually teach each other, to be peer mentors. At the moment, we have a book coming out. It's young people who have not read a poem. I will read it when um, it's it's finally in the tights, you know, it's in the book form. And I get sent the, the first copy to read. It's being looked over by other young identity members, edited by other young identity members, laid out by young identity members. The book cover will be designed jointly by two young identity members. And that's how that's the trust. Um, and it's something that I saw in Denmark pre-COVID. There was a, a, a group of artists that were given a property by their principality, their um the city council and um, it was an artist if you like an artist enclave and they basically said one of the kids said basically the city council are our mum and dads we pay no gas and we pay no electric and they've given us this building but every time they're doing a building around the city one of our sprayers our street sprayers goes and paints a beautiful mural on that and we do that for free because we get the space for free that's trust that's trust between you know their government and the young artists to produce something that's going to look beautiful in the city while a beautiful building is being created we try to do the same it's the pillars in which young identity stands on is to trust the people who we know within our organization um and sometimes you can become unstuck with that when you trust somebody you know somebody might go off and not do a piece of work in the best way that you would have hoped for but it's also we've given them the 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 mechanisms to go out and see whether or not they're going to work well as a um, as a facilitator. We've not we've never really had any complaints about any of our facilitators in saying that. But um, we have had people turn up late, you know, um, and we'll say, okay, maybe you can't do that job in the morning. It doesn't mean to say we don't give them another job. We just make sure that they're, we know they're an evening person and they'll turn up at a three o'clock workshop and we'll get somebody who will turn up at a morning workshop and run that workshop on our behalf. And so it's learning who your team is, learning about the young people that you work with. Um, it feels a little bit less like that now that I'm a CEO of this company because I was teaching everyone. I was at lots of different um workshops and sometimes when you start to do the management side you get less of that hands-on feel but I promised myself when we got MPO that I would make sure that I did a masterclass in all the sessions every month one yeah yeah yeah. because the principles clearly remain because what you seem to be describing is how is the importance of trust in terms of um the the people you're working with you know that the young poets that you're working with is that they are integral to the process they're integral to how your your books are created for example so what i love is this isn't box ticking inclusion exercises because would you agree that there are far too many box ticking um schemes that pay lip service to diversity, which is which is a, an instant issue in itself, um, because that may well cultivate 
imposter syndrome. It's it's throwing carrots. It's not actually offering inclusion in a way that's integral, as you describe. I think that that was one of the... I never wanted to be an MPO, I'm going to be honest, because I had... Um, we worked really hard um, and we worked extremely hard, but we didn't have anybody to report to um, in that we reported to ourselves. We made sure that we had stats, we had numbers, we had things like that, because if you are going to go for a grant, you have to prove that your project is actually doing some of the work or your charity is doing some of the work it claims it's doing. So we did keep records, but I was really kind of scared about really being um, fully um, you know, we would go for grants for the arts, but fully being managed, really, I now work for the country, I work for the Arts Council. And but when they put out that new Arts Council document for the application form, we were everything that was in that document. You know, we were diverse. We were working with our young people. Our young people are a part, you know, we have a steering group committee. We have um, we have young facilitators group. We have a young producers group. Um, and young people run the office. Um, and all of those young people who run the office were people who were finding it difficult to find employment elsewhere. You know, um, and we took a chance on them. And basically they took a chance on us because we had no money to pay them. So the majority of um, the people who worked with us at the beginning were people who were volunteering. And then small pockets of funding, we would pay somebody for the hours of work that they might have produced a particular um, project on. Um, and so for us, it the, the new Arts Council um, application form couldn't have been lip service for us, but I know that people have, you know, and I will be controversial, have said that they're going to change. And I hope that they are going to change and that, you know, a part of the principles around the new um, the new MPO is about being more diverse and inclusive um, and um, the programming being reflective of multicultural Britain um, as it stands today. Um, and I do hope that the organisations who have signed up for these changes, that we actually see this not only on the ground, but in senior management, you know, um, as well, because a lot of organisations are still very much, um, I would say, reflective of the majority of the people who live here in the UK. Um, but it doesn't give any room for anybody else to move up the ladder or stand on you know, stand in the annals of, I don't know, uh, organisations that predominantly are white, you know, um, and don't have any brown or black people or global majority people working in their organisations. This new MPO is a challenge to that. Um, and I look with bated breath to see what happens to organisations when they are recruiting. One of the biggest things I hear all the time, well, um, Nobody applied for the position. It was only these people that applied. Um, um, it was only white people that applied. Or, uh, But when you speak to community, they go, well, I never heard about it. I never saw it. No one came to my university and I was the only one black guy on that course um, to recruit me. That did not happen. You know, um, and so I think it's really... 
it's going to be a challenging three years for a lot of organizations who have said that they are going to be more inclusive. That, that, that grant was made for us because we were doing everything in there. It was like what we had to say is that we were going to do more. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and and so much of this is overdue. Uh, There's so much that's been overlooked for for decades. And it's interesting how you're um, framing, you know, the obvious challenge because um, a a poet uh, you may be aware of and, and who was referenced actually, Shirley, at the Cambridge University conference exploring poetry um, is uh, was Audre Lorde, born in 1934, an American writer, um, you know, well known as a civil rights activist, a womanist, a radical, a radical feminist. Um, and she was dedicated to those challenges of confronting injustice, uh, racism, sexism, classism, homophobia, that follow us around today. And the point she made in terms of the the power of poetry or or the word is poetry is not a luxury. And I wonder if I can just share a quote with you, um, Shirley, from, from Audrey, because I'm sure you'll have really insightful things to say. So I'll quote Audrey Lord. Poetry is not a luxury. It is a vital necessity of our existence. It forms the quality of the life within which we predicate our hopes and dreams towards survival and change, first made into language, then into idea, then into more tangible action. Poetry is the way we help give name to the nameless so it can be thought. Absolutely beautiful quote. And I've got my book open on a poem um, that I feel that actually sums up what Audrey um, is trying to say, or is saying, not trying, saying, um, that actually it is about how it changes your life, how, you know, it happens at poignant times, at weddings, at funerals, at christenings, at special occasions, um, it responds to, um, you know, the pavement lynching of George Floyd just in the middle of COVID. It responds to the now, um, you know, and that's not just through poetry, but it's music as well. You know, I think of Woody Group, um, um, uh, can't say his name. Uh, Who are you thinking of? Uh, a 1930s. American um, folk singer Woody Guthrie. Oh, Woody Guthrie! Yeah, Guthrie. Woody Guthrie. 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 Yeah. that was challenging um, pro- prohibition, um, uh, the state of the economy, where human beings found themselves at that time. Balweski um, did the same thing, you know. So, I have this poem, and it's called "Tomorrow," and it goes. We stand in all our yesterdays where the valiant ones stood, where heroes now stand. I will not flinch nor fall, for we have come too far, so I battle like a queen should. Mothers call to combat, like the battalions of our families, all those who did not lie down, while others took possession of their rise and fall. Spirited like my mother's mother and her mother before, 
We did not yield ground, but braced ourselves for the journey in the hulls of tall ships to distant shores, a bejeweled cargo of victor and victors and brave women. We are the jet black fabulous jazz of isosceles. We stand in all of our yesterdays, where the valiant ones stood, where heroes now stand. You set a path for us to ascend, to find the very best in us as we enter the city gates. We are a people that have battled against those who would try to defeat us. You made us strong, you gave us your voice, you left us your song, told us to rise on the dawn and overstand the storm. You made us spirited, for we are Kenya and Egypt, Senegal and Rwanda, Mali and Libya, Madagascar and Nigeria, Jamaica, Barbados, we are Trinidad. We are a people called to arm, a people not afraid. So we stand in all of our yesterdays where the valiant had once stood and we claim all of our tomorrows in this, our victory song. That's that's really beautiful. That's such a affirming, affirming piece of writing. And it certainly picks up, would you say, on a theme really uh, that, that you that you work with in terms of acknowledging the future, not 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 only carrying a sense of betrayal or injustice and not denying the significance of betrayal and injustice, but embracing the future. In fact, I think another one of your poems is called Are We Still Betrayed? Mm. And yes, are we still betrayed? It's a it's a question I've just put on my um, Instagram. You know, um, another young man, um, as I mentioned before, has been killed, and um, you know, in the United States, um, where racism and pre- prejudice, although it's trying to be better, is still prevalent. And um, and I write, um, and literally, I write. Um, When will we stop being collaborators? Anxiety and a taser does not work together. Another son dead. Why are we so expendable? And and I think that it's important to know that in a world where um, there is still colour difference and um, people make colour into an issue, that ultimately we are human Um, And all of us on this planet, if we don't get the message soon, we will not exist. Because it's not about this border or this line of, um, oh, you know, I'm from Afghanistan, you're from Pakistan, I'm from Bangladesh, you're from Jamaica or Trinidad. It's not about those borders. We need to get rid of them. We need to just get rid of them and go, we are part of a human race. Because you know what? If we get invaded and they are human eating, they're not going to say, which body do you belong to? They're just going to eat you. You know, so actually we need to find a way to work better together so that our future for our children and our grandchildren and ourselves is just better than it is now. You know, and we have to find forgiveness because if we don't find forgiveness, we're just going to 
be always steeped in looking at your neighbour um, and saying, Mr. Mr. Brown's got better than me, so I need to be better than him, rather than embrace that he's done well and how can I support him and how can he support me? Because that's, that's where we should be by now as a human, the human race. The human condition should be in a better place with all of the technology that we have and all of the information that we have. You know, these little petty divisions that, that others fuel, we need to stop listening to, to be honest. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And, and uh, hate and forms of discrimination are ultimately artificial constructs that are taught. And um, it, it is astonishing that the world continues to turn in so much cruelty. But as you acknowledged earlier, there is still a lot of opportunity for for compassion and beauty. And and actually, as you were talking, I thought this really resonated with your current album, Rainfall, because that has an emphasis not only on family in terms of one's immediate family, but perhaps the idea of a global or universal family. That's right. Um, And that's that's what I'm striving for. I know it's what my team strives for is this global family. Young Identity is a global family. It's not just a black organisation led by, you know, black women. It's an organisation that encompasses everyone and everyone is welcome. It has an open door policy. And, um, And, yeah, it's about making sure that we as humans be more human. Or are we being what we are, you know? I've just created a dilemma that are we being who we are and we can't change. Am I looking for a utopia? I hope so. Um, I hope I'm looking for something where, you know, we are challenged as human beings, um, but we can see the good things that we've created, you know, the paintings that really change people's lives just by sitting in a gallery and looking at them, you know, the books that people have written that have just absolutely changed one's um thought processes and how you perceive life you know all of those good things that happen that um that can make the world better i want more of yeah absolutely and i'll just signpost uh the listeners to the fact that your album shirley may's album rainfall um you can find on spotify but i will be including a link on shirley's episode page so you can discover more of her work and shirley uh rainfall to me almost felt like it's a source of an invented phrase really it felt like soft prayers and i suppose what i mean by that is it's not in any way preachy and I was interested in your dedication to your daughter, Nicole. Gather, gather unto me, I say. Mm-hmm. So uh, that poem came from, um, we have a tradition that is called Nine Nights. Um, and you to stay with the family of a deceased person for nine days um, and nine nights, supporting them through um, the first stages of um, grief and um, bereavement and then after the nine ninth you leave them on their own um the person is buried by then um 
some people do it traditionally different ways. Some so, some islands and countries do it that the nine days are after the death, and some do it before the death. But there is a point when the person who's bereaved is on their own. And my a friend of mine passed away. He was quite a well-known chef, um, black chef in Manchester, and his funeral was standing room only at our church, at a local church that we um, sometimes go to. And um, anyway, she just said to me, do you think we would continue this tradition after you guys have gone? And, and, it was, and that poem was my hope that it would continue because it is a, it's the worst time in anyone's life when you lose somebody um, and to be left on your own to do everything by yourself um, cannot be easy. And that's the one thing I love about the Caribbean forward stroke African tradition is we just don't leave you on your own. We chat you to death. We make you cry. We make you laugh. We look at old photographs. We, we um, discuss stories that we shouldn't discuss. We do everything in those nine nights and, it's, and it is underpinned by the church and, the, and what we call the road man. You know, so the man playing the dominoes and smoking his cigar or his spliff or and drinking too much rum with the woman in the next room. Um, try, there's almost a battle between these two groups of people. Um, and I love it. I, I love it. I think it's really important for um, diaspora people to hang on to some of their traditions. And that's what that piece is about. Um, and it's really funny because I had no intentions of making this album. It was on my bucket list to do. And I have a friend called Clive and he lost his mom. And it was Clive who, in COVID, said, I would love to put set some of your poetry to music. And I don't really want to do it. So it's an R&B album or a Broken Beats album or this kind of album. I just want it to be how the word, so we're back at that beginning, leads me with my music. And that's what's happened with this um, collection. Um, and the actual label said to me, what do you want to call it? And I said, I really want to call it Bits and Pieces. And they went, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, they just went, no. Um, and so there was a couple of names, you know, the, um, through the eyes of a woman um, and then Rainfall. And I think Rainfall, because it is about crying, it's about what's, what we were currently going through. And he, he Clive Busherman, um, the, and the person who's written all of the music, um, said to me that it was a part of his healing process while he grieved his mum and while he was in lockdown. You know, and so, you know, it's... I'm really privileged to have people who want to work with me in that way and to encourage me as an artist because I spend all my time encouraging everybody else, helping them to fundraise for their projects and, and the things that they're interested in doing. That Sometimes you neglect your craft because you're helping somebody else create their craft. Um, and so it was really nice for someone to say, actually, stop and take a moment with yourself and what, what sounds do you want to this? And, and I was like, I don't know. And so I, I really did just record the stuff. And there was one time in my bedroom where he took over my computer. I was like, how are you doing this? And recorded it, <laughs> recorded me from his, you know, his studio back in his house. And I was like, this is amazing, but scary. 
Um, and so it's a wonderful, wonderful piece of work to have been involved in. And I, I really do thank the the people who have um, really pushed it, like Johnny J, who is the um, the record label that it's come out under, and um, and Busherman Productions, because they're the ones who were like, come on, come on, get on with it. Um, and it was nice. It was lovely to do it. I really like it. So, Shirley, just as I'm thinking, we'll have to draw to a close, unfortunately, because it is, it is so wonderful talking to you. In terms of everything we've shared, I'm interested in, of course, the series question, Cannot Save Us, which has lots of very mixed responses. There's no right or wrong answer, of course. I'm really interested in what your response is. And we've we've also been talking a lot about the wisdoms of your mother and what she's shared with you. And one of the poems that stood out to me um, in your in your book is Judge Not Lest Ye Be Judged. And it really felt like is that one of the ways art saves us because it's really acknowledging justice and how justice comes about and I just wondered what your thoughts were um for me um the sentiment about um, it's a biblical sentiment judge judge not lest you be judged is a biblical statement that's um you know that has come from my mother's Baptist background um and I think one of my pastors um, in my early years at church used to say, as you point a finger at someone else, there's um, fingers pointing back at you. Um, and and so therefore, um, can I be anybody's judge or jury? Probably not. Can art save? I definitely believe that art is um, something that saves. And, um, you know, earlier on you had your camera off and I actually threw my arms back and threw my head back when you said does art save and I've just thought that actually it saved me you know um it, you know poetry um and what has subsequently happened you know my love of drawing my love of painting my love of um architecture all of that has encompassed um who I am as an artist and I do believe it can save and um I remember going to um America as to an organization called Brave New Voices. And there was, um, is a really renowned um, poet and professor now. And he had hitchhiked across the country to get to Chicago um, because he really wanted to take part in this um, poetry called Brave New Voices. And it's, and they always profess that they, you know, they touch every nation in the world, but they do because America is a dichotomy, isn't it? It's a melting pot of people from everywhere. Um, and also they've got the World Series. And this guy, and it's only them that plays that. <laughs> um, and, and there was this guy that just went, you know, he was talking to our group and he went, it really saved my life. And I had to be here to be a part of this and to meet you and, 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 and to meet this team and to meet all the different teams that were taking part. And this was poetry. This is spoken word. This is, um, this is the, the, I go back to the beginning, the word and what the word means to young people and how it connects and touches, whether or not you're talking about your gender, whether or not you're talking about color or discrimination or the state the world is in with the, um, 
with the issues around climate change. Poetry speaks to all of those things um, and then also in turn speaks to your spirit and your soul. So I do believe that um, art changes you. I do believe poetry changes you. That's my particular art form. And, you know, um, my son-in-law is a director and um, he was a part of a group of people that you met at, um, I think it was Stratford, Stratford South or um, North. I don't know the theatres in London, but it was a theatre in London in Stratford and where he was getting in and out of trouble, but he just got pulled into a community programme that now he's one of the leading, um, I think he's in the hundred list of leading directors in the country. And that is how art changes you. You know, um, Matthew Zia, who um, was at Contact, um, not Contact Theatre, Royal Exchange, um, is, is doing marvellous things. He was a part of that group of um, young people who were pulled into this community programme. And that has given them a new perspective on life. I know that I never thought that I was going to be a poet. As you know, 35 when I started, I'm going to be 60 this year. Um, quite a turning point for me and you know to know that without art where would I be yeah it's 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 such it's such powerful stuff and and your examples are, are so profound and even just mentioning then you know how you actually became a poet at 35 but in 2020, you became an honorary fellow of the Royal Society of Literature. And I think you're such an important, a hugely important um, example to so many people. And of course, especially all of the, the youth you work with through Young Identity, the legacy you're creating is immense. Thank you. Thank you. It's been, um, it's an interesting discovery. You know, I'm I'm part of, a, I, I always say I'm a part of a collectives, you know, I've been a part of Common Word, I've been a part of Speakeasy, I was a part of a group that um, um, called Sisters Talk. I've always been a part of a collective, um, a part of a collective really with Young Identity. And um, all of those, those people, those people that I've encountered have all had an impact. And that impact that they've had on me, I hope I've paid it forward to other people. Um, and that that impact is about, you know, like I said, none of us are perfect. You know, there are failing failures that we we all experience. But actually, the bigger picture is the bigger impact that you've had on someone's life. Um, and, and they've had an impact on mine. And art has definitely changed me and changed, changed my family's life. You know, it's how I earn my living. Um, yeah, it's changed everything for us and it's been good. Absolutely. Shirley, I can't thank you enough for how generous you've been with your time today. I'm so glad I crossed paths with you and your daughter, Nicole, at the Cambridge University Conference. Poets um, have so much to teach us and to encourage us with in terms of having our own our own voices. Thank you so much, Shirley. I really, really do appreciate talking to you today. It's absolutely wonderful, Paula. Thank you for inviting me to the podcast. You're very welcome. Thank you, Shirley. Bye.